Let me very briefly just introduce Peter Myers, who's going to be, uh, he's a professor, University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Uh, his PhD is from Loyola, Chicago. Uh, he's one of the premier political scientists, political theorists, political philosophy students in the country. He's published very broadly. He's got a wonderful book on John Locke, which um, many of us think might well be the best book on Locke ever written. Uh, I'll give you the precise title so I don't screw it up. This was published in 1998. Our only star and compass, our only star and compass, Locke on the, on the struggle for political rationality. Uh, a second uh, important book came out last year, uh, two years ago, I'm sorry, 08, Frederick Douglass, Race and the Rebirth of American Liberalism, which is the topic of his of his talk today. Um, he is also, I think, in this issue, Peter, of the Political Science Reviewer, it's just currently out. American Political Science Review, excuse me. Uh, is it out physically? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think close. not. The May issue, he's got a very big, fat article on, on uh, this is the premier political science um, publication. Uh, he, he has a wonderful, very uh, good article on, on, on Frederick Douglass. You might want to look at it. Um, he is a very, uh, very good teacher, a very fine mind. The purpose of these Monday sessions, not all of you are doing Fred Douglas and such things, I understand that, but the purpose of these sessions, unlike the rest of the week, is just to have a, a short lecture, a short lecture and then a conversation. So I've asked Peter to speak for about 30 minutes, just to set something up so that uh, you can have a conversation <coughs> with him for another 30 minutes or so. And that gives you something more substantial in common than listening to me saying nothing about John Tyler for five minutes. <laughs> okay, so that's the purpose of these Sunday sessions. Peter, thank you kindly for doing this. Please welcome Professor Mike. Thank you, thank you all of you. Thank you, Peter, for this uh, kind of extravagantly excessive introduction. Um, Customary to begin lectures like this, public lectures, uh, with an apology. And so uh, my apology is directed especially to those of you who were here last year and who remember that I gave the opening lecture last year too. And so you might well be thinking, are they going to make us listen to the same stuff every year to begin these uh, begin these mag sessions? Uh, and uh, so let me put my apology this way: I'm going to try to talk to you tonight about things that I can't remember saying last year. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the this is one of the great things about having uh, a, a memory of a certain age uh, that it's easy to be original. Um, ask ask my wife, uh, and uh, she would tell you that seems to me at least that almost everything I say I can't remember <laughs> saying before, uh, for that matter everything I hear from others I can't remember hearing before either. Uh, and so uh, what you get tonight are my totally original thoughts <laughs> on this subject, or many of them as I can, uh, as I can get out in uh, about a half hour. Uh, here's a, a simple and just a little bit evasive way of describing my subject. Uh, we're going to talk tonight about 
one American's reflections on the enduring meaning of the career and character of Abraham Lincoln. If you spend any time in this room or uh, any time uh, at the Ashbrook Center, you know that this place is teeming with experts on Lincoln, among which I don't count myself. Uh, and the Lincoln experts in the room can tell you better than I that there are lots and lots of opinions about Lincoln. And those opinions diverge, in some cases, very, very sharply. To illustrate that, let me start with a couple sets of quotations, <coughs> slightly modified by me for, for effect. Uh, here's the first. <coughs> I know of no man who possessed a more godlike nature than did Abraham Lincoln. <coughs> Under his wise and beneficent rule, the Confederate States of America, based upon the idea that one race must be slaves and slaves forever, was battered to pieces and scattered to the four winds. For in his heart of hearts, Lincoln loathed and hated <coughs> slavery. Further, Lincoln was the first American president who rose above the prejudices of his times and country. While he was unsurpassed in his devotion to the welfare of the white race, he was emphatically the black man's president, the first to show any respect to their rights as men. That's, that's one. Or, to protect, defend, and perpetuate slavery in the states where it existed, Abraham Lincoln was not less ready than any other president to draw the sword of the nation. He was willing to pursue, recapture, and send back the fugitive slave to his master, and to suppress a slave rising for liberty, <coughs> though his guilty master were already in arms against the government. He strangely told black Americans that they were the cause of the war. He still more strangely told them that they were to leave the land in which they were born. He was preeminently the white man's president, entirely devoted to the welfare of white men. You, you see where I'm going with this. Um, the, the author of the first set of quotations, the laudatory set, was obviously our own Lucas Morell. Uh, no, it was uh, it was Mac Owens, or it was Peter Schramm. It was one of the, the Ashland experts on Lincoln. And the author of the second was one of the notorious Lincoln haters. It was Lerone Bennett, or it was uh, it was Tom DiLorenzo. Yeah. Well, the author of both was Frederick Douglass. And most of them come from the same speech. And it was one of his, or I suggest anyway, it was one of his great speeches. Um, and the basic idea, or the occasion, was to memorialize Lincoln on the occasion of the unveiling of the Freedmen's Monument. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that speech. <coughs> Anybody know anything about this occasion? The, the, the story begins in 1865. The morning after Lincoln was assassinated, a woman named Charlotte Scott, who was a freed woman, she had been enslaved in Virginia, and she'd moved after emancipation to Ohio, 
was very aggrieved upon hearing that Lincoln had been assassinated. I believe the quotation attributed to her is the colored people have lost their best friend on earth. And so she pledged to, uh, to devote the first $5 that she had saved in freedom to the commission of a monument to remember Lincoln. And I believe that this is right, the historians might, might uh, correct me on this if they know better, that, that it was a local minister who gets word of this uh, and who organizes a campaign. And the campaign takes 11 years, but the money is raised and uh, a sculptor of some renown <coughs> is hired and the monument gets produced. And it gets displayed in Washington, D.C. in Lincoln Park, where it stands today. It is unveiled on the 11-year anniversary of Lincoln's assassination, April 14, 1876. And apparently, there was never any doubt who was going to give the speech to, to dedicate the monument. So Frederick Douglass, most accomplished speaker of the day, black or white, white probably the most accomplished, uh, most accomplished American orator at that time, gives the speech. And he speaks to a Washington, D.C. audience, very dignified audience. Uh, the, the president is there, members of Congress are there, the United States Supreme Court is there, uh, and a large number of locals, a large number of them being, uh, being African Americans. On such an occasion, you would expect, so far as Douglas ever did anything conventionally, you would expect a eulogy, conventional eulogy, you know, praising, glorifying Lincoln. And the speech does that in a, in a way, but, it, but as the quotation suggests, it does a lot of other things too. It's a very complicated speech. And so a lot of people, smart people, careful readers, have gotten the impression from the speech that Douglas is really in kind of a divided mind about how to think about Lincoln. Praises him to the skies in some parts of the speech. But he mixes that praise with very sharp criticism to the point of hostility. How to, how to make sense of that? You know, what, what is Douglas's real opinion, at least as conveyed in the speech about Lincoln? And what does he mean to accomplish by making this speech in which he presents such sharply conflicting opinions? <coughs> Well, start with the, the concrete subject of the speech. The center of the occasion, as Douglas conceives it anyway, so far as I can tell, is not Frederick Douglass. You know, the center of the occasion is the monument, is, the, is the, the act of producing the Freedmen's Monument. And so what Douglas is trying to do is to explain the meaning of this action by the, by the free people. What are they doing? in building a monument, this monument, to Lincoln. What, is it, what does it mean? Well, here's uh, Douglas more generally, back from a speech he gives in 1855, on the occasion of the dedication of another less exalted <coughs> monument uh, to a lesser known abolitionist. Douglas said something interesting about why people build monuments. So these are Douglas's words. It is not an alien sentiment which erects these monuments. It is composed of two elements, pious gratitude on the one hand 
and an earnest desire to perpetuate illustrious examples and to make them the property of posterity. So, first point is this, back in 1876 now. The, the Freedmen's Monument and Douglass's speech about the Freedmen's Monument represent historical acts in a certain sense, remembering Lincoln, um, but more importantly, moral acts. And the, the act and the speech are moral acts, I think, the way that Douglass presents it in, in two ways. One of them is a relatively narrow way. We're giving Lincoln what he deserves. That is, it's an expression of gratitude to Lincoln. It is doing justice to Lincoln's memory, honoring his career, his achievements, his character. Okay. In the grander sense, it is these these two senses correspond to what he says in his remarks about uh, about the monument building sentiment. In the grander sense, it's an act of philanthropy. Um, what you're doing is not only giving something to Lincoln that is honor, right, for for being the emancipator. What you're doing is also giving something to posterity, something posterity needs, or at least something that's good for it. Um, you, you are transmitting the memory of Lincoln um, as an example for future generations. All right, so far so good. So, so Douglas and the freed people here are not doing academic history. Well, right, fine, we know that. Um, <coughs> Douglas and the freed people aren't doing moral philosophy either in any, in any real simple sense. They're doing politics. At least that's Douglas's reading of it also. For America in general, and for African Americans in particular, there are very important political interests at stake here in 1876, and Douglas means to speak to them. And he tells you that in the speech in a couple of places. In closing the speech, he says, fellow citizens, we have done a good work for our race today. So in some sense, the monument and the speech are advancing the political interests of black Americans. Near the beginning of the speech, he's commenting on the location that it's given Washington and the politically distinguished character <coughs> of the audience. Uh, and he says, we stand today at the National Center to perform something like a national act. Now, I'm going to use a bad word here to describe this. Uh, Douglas, Douglas is doing, at least I think in his own understanding, in a maybe kind of his own small way. Douglas is engaged in nation building here this word that the, the people who write the Claremont Review <coughs> books are heaping regular abuse on lately, nation building. Uh, this is a nation building act, says, says Douglas. It is a little more precise way to describe that maybe would be to say it is a nation binding act. And if you think of it that way, it's a continuation of what Lincoln says in, the second, in Lincoln's second inaugural address to an effort to bind up the nation's wounds. Well, a little more about the first especially. A good work for our race today. Douglas spends most of the time in this speech talking 
speaking for African Americans, continual references to our people, our race, uh, and to some extent speaking to them also, though not, though not exclusively. Good work for our race today. When he says that, we're doing a good work for our race today, he says something more about what that good work is. Honoring Lincoln, he says, these now his words, we have also been defending ourselves from a blighting scandal, when now it shall be said that the colored man is soulless, that he has no appreciation of benefits or benefactors. We may calmly point to the monument we have this day erected to the memory of Abraham Lincoln. So the, the Freedmen's Monument is, in the most visible way, a demonstration of the virtue of gratitude. Now, this virtue gratitude is, in Douglass's mind, a very important virtue. He says something in the same speech earlier. He says something very effusive about it, which again, uh, I, will, I will read. <coughs> now, Douglas again. The sentiment that brings us here today is one of the noblest that can stir and thrill the human heart. It has crowned and made glorious the high places of all civilized nations with the grandest, most enduring works of art designed to illustrate the characters and perpetuate the memories of great public men. It is the sentiment which from year to year adorns the graves of our loyal, brave, and patriotic soldiers who fell in defense of the Union and Liberty. It is the sentiment of gratitude and appreciation a sentiment which can never die while the Republic lives. Now, <clears throat> this is a striking thing, if you think about it. Douglas standing up in public and saying, this is a, this is a kind of grand display, demonstration of the virtue of gratitude um, by the free people, perhaps by black Americans more generally. You know, a man formerly enslaved himself, speaking as a uh, representative of a people as a whole, almost as a whole, lately enslaved, <coughs> issues a public expression of gratitude, if you think about it, for freedom that was rightfully theirs all along, Actually, if you think about it further, for really only a partial version of the freedom that was rightfully theirs all along. And so it's possible, when you think about that in context a little bit, to make a certain kind of case against this expression of gratitude. And a lot of people, I shouldn't maybe say a lot, some prominent scholars reading the speech make just this case against, uh, against this expression of gratitude. Look things should have been much better much earlier, right? And they still aren't great for the population of people now, now, now called the free people. Um, but they do, you know? So you could say this expression of gratitude might be better replaced by a much more fiery kind of denunciation of present conditions, which is what some commentators say about the whole speech. Um, but they do express gratitude. And Douglass's attitude toward that is, 
that they're right to express gratitude. They're not only right to express gratitude in this way, they're smart <coughs> to do it. And that's, that's really the main point. Why the expression of gratitude and not, you know, more of an expression of outrage about continuing injustices in the 1870s? Douglas's answer to that, I think, bluntly and simply put, is because it's good for us, good for us, right? This is part of the good work for our race that we're doing with the monument and the speech. Why is it good for us? And the answer to that in part, I think, is that gratitude, this virtue of gratitude is important to justice, is important to Douglas because it's very closely related to the, the virtue that lies at the center of political virtue, and that's the virtue of justice. Gratitude is, uh, is, is a variant of justice, right? You're doing justice to Lincoln, and in doing justice to Lincoln, you're showing a capacity for justice. You know, let's think about that a little further, a little more about the, about the context. What Lincoln did was difficult. The Emancipation Proclamation, I mean, was difficult politically. It got him in a good bit of trouble. It resulted in his party losing badly the, the uh, uh, elections in the fall of 1862, the, the promise of the proclamation did. Um, it was a politically risky thing to do. It was a heartfelt and principled thing for Lincoln to do. And it conveyed conferred a, a measureless potential good, at least, upon a people who were no part of his political constituents because they couldn't vote for him, right? Uh, so Lincoln deserves credit for this. Lincoln deserves to be honored for this. And so justice, so far as justice means and gratitude means returning a benefit for benefits received, then this is an act of justice. So far as it is a public act of justice, it's a demonstration of a central qualification for citizenship. So on the one hand, you're praising Lincoln, you know, doing a good thing for someone else. On the other hand, you're doing a good work for your own. Because what you're doing is making an indirect case for that, that, uh, that, that presses Douglass's argument for the guarantee of the most important right in his understanding that African Americans can, uh, can exercise and that's the right to vote. The whole thing is a kind of brief for the, for the suffrage right without making it a direct <coughs> subject. That's part of it. There's another part <coughs> that's pretty closely related. Why is this expression of gratitude good for us from Douglas's point of view? Partly also because uh, gratitude here is closely related to patriotism. This is a means, this, the way that Douglas presents it anyway, is a means, I think this is a part in which he speaks to black Americans, not just for them. This is a means of solidifying a sentiment of American patriotism. Patriotism is a problematic thing for African Americans for quite obvious reasons in the 19th century and beyond the 19th century, right? Um, Douglass's point is not to deny that, but it is to affirm on top of that that patriotism, American patriotism, is absolutely necessary. It is a vital condition for our own improvement of our condition, 
Why? How is how is that so? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna break my promise uh, that I made to you at the outset. Now I am gonna repeat myself uh, because uh, I have to read to you something that I'm pretty sure, <laughs> although I forget a little bit, <laughs> that I did read in, uh, in in last year's version. That is this quotation, late quotation from uh, another of Douglass's <coughs> speeches that comes in 1894. <coughs> Every man who thinks at all must know that home is the fountainhead, the inspiration, the foundation, and main support of all the motives to human progress, and that no people can prosper or amount to much unless they have a home or the hope of a home. To have a home, the Negro, his language, must have a country, and he is an enemy to the moral progress of the Negro, whether he knows it or not, who calls upon him to break up his home <coughs> in this country for an uncertain home in Africa. Douglas, the context of that is that uh, there's always a, a relatively small but somewhat influential movement among uh, some, uh, some, I guess, rival African-American activists and intellectuals that promoted emigration. The premise of which was, look, we're never going to get a fair shake in the United States. What we ought to do is leave and start up a, a, a country of our own where we could be self-governing, where we don't have to deal with the white people anymore. And Douglas thought, on the one hand, this is understandable. On the other hand, this is absolutely destructive to our, to our real prospects. And so he makes this, in explaining why, he makes this comment about the sentiment of home and especially concerning the sentiment of an American home, which I'm, which I'm referring to as, uh, as American patriotism. Right? Well, now, a little bit further, why does he say home is the fountainhead of all motives to human progress? What does this mean? Well, a couple of points. For Douglas, when you boil it down and generalize, there are, there are really two great dangers, two huge dangers to African-American elevation, progress. One is obvious, white prejudice, white bigotry and the discrimination that results from that. Right? The second is a sentiment of alienation on the part of black Americans themselves. Again, perfectly understandable, right? Alienation meaning more or less what we just said about the immigration. Things in America are hopeless. Proper attitude of an African American is to think of themselves as Africans in America, not really Americans, a colonized people, right? A people awaiting liberation from the whole American political system. Alienation, hopelessness so far as we're here in the, in the United States. Douglas thinks this is absolutely destructive. And so he starts to get people, he tries to get people to think about what it means to have a home. And you know, not to be too grandiose about it, but it, this, is a, this is an essential condition of being a fully developed human person. Um, for Douglas, you know, I mean, in, uh, in, in common language, home is a place you build your life a little more philosophically. You know, home is the center of your life as a temporal and social being. A temporal being, a person who has a past and a future. You know, a person who has ancestors to honor. 
and descendants or prospective descendants to try to bequeath something for. You know, home means you've got people you love and things you work for, right? If you don't have these things, he says in a part of that speech, part of that remark that I didn't quote, you know, who doesn't have a home is just a nobody, says Douglas, and that's all they're going to be. And this is what he this is what he means by that. You know, to have to be alienated in this sense, homeless in in this more broad sense, is to lack a very important condition to virtue. It is to be a kind of transient creature of momentary impulse, right? Without aspiration, motivated more or less by by low passions, incapable of the kind of extensive industry that it's really going to take <coughs> if you're going to build a life in, in America. Okay, Now, that's to have a home in a country generally. For Douglas, this has to be an American home. You know, For the huge majority of black Americans, the only realistically plausible home is American. And if you start from that premise, then you have a choice. Your basic choice is to live in America in a condition of alienation. And so to resign yourselves to lives limited by anger and hopelessness. Or it is to consider America home. To identify yourselves in a, in a, in a more wholehearted way as Americans. And therefore to, to work in practice to make it so to make America more amenable to your to your interests and sympathies. <coughs> now, it, when you put it in those terms, the choice is obvious, and for Douglas, the choice, the choice was obvious. <coughs> so what he's trying to do, I think, in doing a good work for our race today, as he says in his speech, celebrating the, the memory of Lincoln, is to cultivate a certain spirit of patriotism among his among his own people. Um, this is not a simple act of will. This is a hard thing. Right? Um, it it requires that kind of patriotism requires a faith that America can improve, that it can become, partly by your own efforts, more fully at home. And that faith requires reasons to support it. And with that thought, you come back to the monument. You come back to the figure of Lincoln. Okay. Um, gratitude to Lincoln here means that you you exalt Lincoln. You know, Douglas calls him the first martyr president. In, uh, he calls him the man of our redemption. In, in obviously religious terms in this, in this speech. And he does that to express a certain spirit of reverence, really, felt by a large number of black Americans toward Lincoln uh, at, this, at this time. And I think what that means is that Douglas, Douglas self-consciously wants um, black Americans in this way, white Americans in a certain other way, to think of Lincoln as the symbol of America, um, that you know, for Black Americans, Lincoln represents the uh, the, the possibility of moral improvement, um, justice toward toward Blacks, and so 
Lincoln is a kind of bridge you know, between, he's a kind of medium through which African Americans can love Lincoln, that's the easier part. And through their love of Lincoln, they can come to love a country that's capable of producing a Lincoln. I think that's the, that's, that's that part of the speech. All of that, well and good. All of that uh, as an explanation of the first set of quotations I read to you. Lincoln the godlike, you know, Lincoln the great, the great emancipator does pretty well, or, or I hope, anyway. Um, what about the derogatory remarks? What about the Lincoln was the white man's president entirely devoted to the welfare of the white race, which he says, bluntly, right, in this speech also? How do we, how do we make sense of that? A little more pointedly, um, how does that contribute to the good work for our race today that he says he's doing here? And how does it contribute to the national act that he says is also represented by the, by the, the, the monument in his, in his speech? You know, why the divided mind? I've actually, I've got a, a fair number of things to say about this, but I don't really want to belabor you at this point <coughs> further, further with them. Um, so I'm going to stop and leave that. I guess I'm sort of getting the drop on you, as uh, as it were, by uh, throwing out a question before you have a chance to question me. But uh, uh, but uh, you can you can question or comment as you as you like. But it seems to me that that's that's an interesting thing to talk about. Why the the critical perspective in the speech? And maybe another interesting thing to talk about is the extent to which this this project works. Douglas putting forward Lincoln or a Lincoln with some faults as a, as a unifying symbol in the, in the country. And if it works then, does it still work? Should it still work? <coughs> those, are, those are my questions. Uh, uh, maybe you've got answers or maybe you've got questions of your own. Yeah? I think that it was important for him in the speech to pretty much tell the truth of the whole matter, which is um, there were two sides to what was going on. You know, that we had the, um, the issue of slavery and those things that needed to be dealt with, and um, man, for whatever reason, has flaws, and um, Lincoln was... Um, I don't know if he was pressured. I, I can't. I, I'm sure he was pressured, you know, to have to. You have the issue of slavery and the blacks not being too happy about it. Well, then who would be happy with being enslaved? Right. You know, there's nothing joyful about being enslaved. <coughs> and so, for Frederick Douglass to just state things just as they were, this was just a harsh reality, and these things needed to be needed to be said. And so. The part about um, our race a good thing, this whole idea of this monument being a good thing. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little more about about the thought you expressed a second ago. Why do they need to be said? In in the sense, um, how do they, how do they contribute to the good work that he says he's doing here? 
I'm thinking that, you know, I, I guess in, you think in terms when someone dies or when well, he was assassinated, yeah. it's like it's almost as if you're reading a eulogy. And most times in a eulogy, you, you hear all the good things, the accolades yeah. in a eulogy. Yeah. But when it comes to, um, <coughs> people don't really tell the truth, you know. For example, I'm from Chicago. You get greatest big city in the country. You get you, you go to these funerals of those who are involved with gangs. <coughs> you know, a lot of them they they kill people and they've done these different things. But you would never read in a eulogy the reality of the things that they did. Yeah. And so, but th this was not in his eulogy the bad or the good. But this was just a speech about the the positives and the negatives of this whole idea of slavery. And uh, yes, I, the good thing about the let's do this monument. He did a good thing by emancip emancipating the slaves and all of that. But I guess being African American, I, I struggle with a, a lot of the things. Sometimes we, I think we talked about it in our class earlier, about how we're, it's easy for us to kind of speak <coughs> some things, but then re not really live up to those things. Mm. It's easy to say, to speak. You know, I, I'm trying to get my words together. It's easy to say something, but it's harder to do what you're what you're pr actually preaching. You know, they, it's, instead of uh, just you're preaching, or do you live what you preach, so to speak? Okay, okay. What what if I put my question in a possible <coughs> question in a much edgier way, right? Mm -hmm. What if what if we said, okay, Douglas goes on at some length about the gratitude business. I read you the quotation, I won't read it again, right? You know, what we're doing is expressing gratitude. And in parts of the speech, you know, exalted language about, about Lincoln, the man of our redemption, which is a little ambiguous. It's not quite the same as calling Lincoln a savior, but it's kind of close, right? Uh, 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 and he does call him godlike in a, in a later speech. So there's that. And then what if you said, okay, the speech contains that stuff, this exaltation of Lincoln, um, in the context of presenting this monument that, that seems obviously intended not to insult, right? Seems obviously intended to elevate the memory of Lincoln, and yet cancels it all out, in effect, by saying things that we quoted earlier, right? He was the white man's president. He was only devoted, think about that, entirely is the word Douglas uses, devoted to the welfare of the white race. Um, that he was ready to draw the sword in defense of slavery where it existed and, and so forth on and on. And the, the gist of that is, if, is that, that, uh, that Lincoln was, and this is a thesis popular among some historians, that, that Lincoln was kind of dragged into emancipation. Hart wasn't really in it. Really what he believed in was saving the Union. He was more or less indifferent toward the, toward the, the, the abolition of slavery. Uh, and so this, again, to put this point in an edgier way, Douglas represents these two perspectives. Lincoln's the great savior of African Americans' freedom on the one hand, and on the other hand, Lincoln's reputation as a great emancipator is pure fraud, which was a thesis of a historian named Lerone Bennett. Go ahead. I mean, could it have something to do with the idea, like, um, if you see him as the great emancipator, and you're going to show this gratitude, and this gratitude has to do with also um, kind of establishing African Americans as Americans in patriotism, but then pointing out that that is the, 
his the emancipation thing was more of an ideal ideal and it wasn't as real and therefore there's so much more that we have to actually work for so don't get lost in this like this cloud of happiness because in actuality the realistic situation that we are in you know and he can because he seemed to be like a dichotomy he kind of personifies both you know what I mean like you can read I mean you can read Lincoln and see stuff that makes it sound like he you know, he did believe in the idea of emancipation. He did believe in, in different things. But at the same time, you can read other things that he said where you could kind of question, you know, people say he was a man of his times, but you would almost question, you know, his how he felt about African Americans in general or how he saw them as yeah. humans. Yeah. And so he's kind of letting you like letting African Americans know if we're going to establish ourselves in this country and be Americans, then we, you know, we should be grateful for what he's done, but then also realize that we have a long fight ahead of us and that it's not going to be easy because this is a common, you know, either common views and ideas. Okay, okay. There are a couple of points in that I want to, I want to come back to, but there were <coughs> a couple others who wanted to weigh in on this. Go ahead. Um, it sounds like from, from uh, Douglas's speech that he's using Lincoln as a, as a critique of the current situation for the uh, freed slaves in that in the initial period of, of ending of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction, they had begun voting and had, uh, under the military control, had, had started enjoying civil liberties as never before, but as Reconstruction by 1876 started winding down, and state control was being returned to the uh, white population of the South they saw all of these uh, initial benefits go away. So in, in much as the critique of Lincoln not really dragging his feet, I mean, it, Lincoln dragging his feet kind of the same way that there's this initial burst of, oh my goodness, look what we all got. And then it's realized a lot of it's just hollow. Well, I think all of that is historically accurate. And all of that could not have been lost on Douglas in making this speech. I mean, the things are in certain Supreme Court rulings and other kinds of developments. Things are starting to go bad in Reconstruction years before 1876. Um, and it's and in that way, maybe a little different way. It's a little striking that he says almost nothing about that in the in this in this particular speech in 1876. He. And what he says about present conditions would, if you didn't know the surrounding history, would almost lead you to believe, he makes a suggestion, I can't quote it from memory exactly, but the, the sense of it is that, that racial prejudice is rapidly disappearing from the whole country, that it's present and powerful in just a few kind of isolated locations in the U.S., but, uh, but that this great remarkable progress has been made as though we're, we're really almost out of the woods here. And, uh, and, and people criticize him for saying those things, for, for saying things that suggest uh, a much gauzier picture of, uh, of race relations in 1876 than really actually existed. And so when you think of it that way, then why would he spend some time voicing a criticism of Lincoln rather than voicing a criticism of the present conditions that one could plausibly uh, depict as a betrayal of Lincoln's, of Lincoln's legacy? 
Um, well, I think that's sort of a sense, <coughs> in a way, of the speech, but he doesn't really come out and say that. Uh, I would answer that to say that yeah. just, just for political reasons, you said he knew he couldn't say anything about the current situation because it would be bad for him politically <coughs> and, and getting his objectives to actually say what was going on. So he kind of going using Lincoln as as an, uh, uh, what's that word? Just a simile mm -hmm. to try yeah, to I think get at his least point across in this particular venue. Because um, he does say much more direct things in speeches surrounding this, but just not not quite in this one, not at this yeah, not at this time and place. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, two things. That's really one is that you said eleven years have gone by, right. so right. he has had lots of time to reflect on Lincoln and yeah. his actions. And to me, it almost seems that he uh, he's saying that Lincoln is the white man's president, but he is maybe just kind of saying thank you for this one act, you know, maybe more isolated the emancipation as a as one act rather than being a man who had dedicated his entire life to, you know, abolition or something like that. Maybe he's here here are a couple of things to think about. Uh, just just my own suggestions and you can respond to them as you as you will. Um, about that white man's president business. The the one of the complications in that is remember you know, in the quotations I was reading earlier, there's this phrase, he was emphatically the black man's president. Now, Douglas said that. Douglas said that in 1865, a few months after Lincoln was, was assassinated. This man was emphatically the black man's president, and he rose farther than any public Ameri publicly prominent American, anyway, above the, the prejudices of his day, the race prejudices. Uh, so says Douglas. And he says these things about about the benignness of Lincoln's racial sentiments, about how cordially, respectfully he treated Douglas uh, at, when he visited him in the White House and so forth. Uh, uh, and so he, he says these glowing things in speeches in 1865 and then speeches after 1876, not only about the fact that Lincoln was the emancipator, but also about how Lincoln was, I don't know that Douglas thought completely, but he was relatively but impressively free of, of racial prejudice, right? Um, so there's that. Uh, surrounding this remark, he was the white man's president. And I guess my suggestion about that is that when Lincoln said that, or sorry, when Douglas said that Lincoln was emphatically the black man's president, he meant it when he said it, and he continued to believe that in, in 1876. Um, I think what changed is that he didn't think it advantageous to say that in, 18, in 1876. Um, I think that, that this remark is directed toward, if we want to divide his audience racially, it's directed toward both parts of his audience but in, a diff but in different ways. It's directed toward the black American part of, it, of his audience with a certain intention, and toward the whites with another another intention. Um, I think to the, the black American part of the audience, I think that for Douglas it is a useful thing to call Lincoln the white man's president, even in a way that probably exaggerates Douglas's reservations about, about Lincoln. Why, why is that? Well, um, 
I guess the simple way to put it is this. There's a spirit among a lot of African Americans uh, in the immediate post-Civil War years, again, for pretty obvious and understandable reasons, uh, to regard Lincoln as a kind of savior. You know, Lincoln, the way he died, he got assassinated on Good Friday, right? You know, I mean, Lincoln, Lincoln becomes a Christ-like figure in his sacrifice for the sins of the country. Lincoln, of course, had no way of knowing this was going to happen to him, but some of the things he himself says in the second inaugural uh, are, are suggestive of this, of this interpretation. The whole Civil War is a kind of <laughs> hugely punishing atonement for the, for the sins of the country. And then it's capped off by the, the martyring of, uh, of, of Lincoln, right? So Lincoln becomes inevitably this Christ figure, this savior in the minds of, of black Americans. To some extent justified, right? And to some extent Douglas encourages that. He calls him the man of our redemption. He calls him the first martyr president of the, of the United States. He calls him godlike. But on the other hand, this is not entirely healthy. Uh, to think of any other human being, or merely human being, maybe I should say, as a savior. Human beings are not really very dependable as, as saviors, right? <laughs> Politicians are much less so <laughs> as saviors, right? And so I think, I, mean, Link, I mean, Douglas is thinking that, you know, on the one hand, Lincoln may deserve some of this. On the other hand, this is not a good attitude for, for black Americans to have. Lincoln's gone. And Lincoln's a one in a thousand, one in a million politician. And we didn't have the right to, I mean, the, the, the right in the sense of the actual chance to vote for him. And so the good that he did us was entirely due to his own character, which is a pretty singular character. Much better to depend on ourselves, right? I mean by that to depend on ourselves to have a right to vote, that we can exercise our own power, elect our own politicians, who are beholden to us, right, and so be in control of our own fates. A lot better to, to encourage that kind of sentiment than the, than the relying on the Savior kind of sentiment. There's a, I think Frederick Douglass, I'm hopping around a little bit here, but, uh, but this is pertinent. I'm, I think Frederick Douglass is one of the great Lockeans of American history, actually. Maybe it comes as no surprise, <laughs> given my own <laughs> publication history, to, to say that. But, uh, but I do think that. Uh, and there's a, there's a thought expressed by John Locke in the Secretaries of Government that's very pertinent here. Locke says, the, I, this is not an exact quotation, but it's pretty close, that the, the, the wisest and best princes are the most dangerous to the liberties of their people. Right? Why is that? Not because of anything about the wisest and best princes themselves, but because they're bad examples. Right? Because they encourage people to believe in providential, benignly paternalistic <coughs> governments that are going to take care of them. Right? And that's unwise. That's ill-befitting the population of any, of any Republican citizenry. <coughs> uh, and I think there's that Lockean thought in Douglass's criticizing of Lincoln, that Lincoln has to be diminished just a little bit to make it consistent with the spirit of, the kind of spirit of self-reliance that we're going to need if we're really going to be in control of our own, of our own political fate. I think that to the, to the black part of this audience. There's more to the whites, but, but I'll be quiet for a second. Um, in reading the speech uh, for the race and equality class, uh, it wasn't the speech that stuck out at me so much as the introduction.
narrator who made the comment that he didn't believe, based on maybe uh, a speech that Frederick Douglass had given, that Douglass did not really like the monument because of the position that the slave was to Lincoln um, in a paternalistic type of situation. Yeah, so far as I know, that's true. The, 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 when uh, the, the documentation of this in the, the historical sources that I've read it in is a little shaky, but, um, but, but the, the report was that Douglas made a comment on this occasion, that he, he made an aside to someone, that he didn't much like the posture of the monument because it depicts, uh, well, what Douglas said about it was that it depicts the slave kneeling before, before Lincoln. This had, in fact, been a little bit of a controversy in the, the crafting of the monument. And, and uh, I don't know a great deal about this, but I know a little. That there, was a, there was an earlier version which apparently uh, depicted the, the, the liberated former slave in, a, in a, a, a much more, what do I want to say, you know, much more dependent kind of position. And there was some objection to that. And so the thing was redone, was recast a little bit. So the, 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 the freed person, the freedman, becomes much more muscular, and he's rising. Um, but he's still close to being on his knees. Right? And he's looking way up at, at Lincoln, you know, who's taller than almost everybody in his, in his, own, his own day. Uh, and, and that part of it, I'm not sure Douglas knew that the monument had been changed to try to take care of that objection. But it, at any rate, I don't know if that matters a whole lot. Yeah, Douglas, Douglas looked at that and thought that this depicts the, the, the black man in a, in a posture of dependency before Lincoln. And, uh, and he thought that was, that was ill-suited, I guess, to the occasion. By the way, I, what I'm suggesting about how to read the speech really is, is exactly on the point. I mean, I think that especially this part about the white man's president, you know, when he makes these remarks, he's trying to assert a certain spirit of vigilant independence, right? That means that Douglas is trying in his speech to correct what he sees as that defect in the, in the monument. Yeah, so it's, if I understand you correctly, it's very different from King and I uh, have a dream speech where he's saying we're African-Americans have come here, and I have to paraphrase here, but to cash a check, uh, promissory note, I think he used the phrase promissory note. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's that something has been, that's owed African-Americans has not been paid. It sounds like you're saying Douglas is more into, uh, not so much as what maybe Lincoln made a down payment and it remains all this debt to be paid, it's more African-Americans have to figure out how we're going to make a life for ourselves here in this land? Maybe I don't know if self-reliance is what you. Well, it's uh, there's a similarity and a difference, <coughs> I suppose. It, it's it is certainly true that Douglas's understanding of the idea of self-reliance, what that meant, differed from Martin Luther King's understanding of the of the idea of self-reliance. And there's an emphasis on that idea in a certain way in Martin. Luther but they do. I think that I think that is fair to say that they do understand the the, the meaning of self-reliance and the nature of integration in in different ways. That said, 
Douglas's self-reliance here is not the kind of self-reliance that suggests that we can be completely independent of the, the white majority, you know, that rules the country that surrounds us. Um, that self-reliance in this context, I mean, I think means something more like this. Look, Lincoln came along and did something really good for us, but the fact that he did that something really good for us is, from a certain point of view, accidental. We couldn't elect him, you know. I mean, we had no power really to control what he did in office. So it was just a kind of gratuitous benefit. It's not safe to rely on that. The self-reliance is more the exercise of the right to vote, I think, than it is anything else in this, in, in this one. Um, further thought about the, about the white man's president stuff. I think that's directed to whites also in a, in a certain way. I mean, um, <laughs> Douglas is concerned on the one hand with cultivating, nurturing, sustaining in black Americans <coughs> the kind of virtue that's going to be required. Spirit of industry, kind of doggedness about, uh, about, uh, about, about agitating for rights and making yourselves prepared to exercise rights. You know, all of that to, to black Americans. But Douglas is perfectly well aware. None of that's really going to do a whole lot of good unless there's a lot of change, change of, of moral sentiment ultimately among among whites. Okay, Lincoln needs to be Lincoln needs to be a figure representative of America to the white part of the audience too. He needs to remind Americans of what he really spent his life trying to remind Americans of, of the, the full meaning of the, of the Declaration of Independence. Um, but I think that it's, I think Douglas thinks that this, this part of the, the, uh, the project, of using Lincoln as a symbol to try to dissipate whites' race prejudice, is necessary but has to be approached in a really delicate way. I think that Douglas, this is my you know, maybe a little bit half-baked reading of this, but I think Douglas over time, in the years between 1865 and 1876, decides that, you know, it's still true in a way that Lincoln was emphatically the black man's president, but it's not the wisest thing in the world to say that publicly. And so in this speech he says, it, pretty early on in the speech, fellow citizens, and here he's talking to the whites, you know, in what we say here, we it seems kind of sarcastic. We disclaim arrogance in, uh, in, in erecting this monument to Lincoln. We don't, that means to say, I think, you know, he says that we, we don't want to be presumptuous. We certainly don't want to preempt white Americans in their memorializing of, uh, of the fallen president. Well, <laughs> that means to say, I'm not going to say here that Lincoln is emphatically the black man's president. I'm not going to say that anymore. If I say that, the risk is, with you know, racial opinion being what it was, the risk is not so much that that elevates whites in the direction of Lincoln. The risk is that it discredits Lincoln in the minds of the whites. And so Douglas tells him, no, he was your president. And then he goes on to say why. I mean, he, was, he was not our man, our representative, our model. He was yours. 
he was of you. He was born in Kentucky, you know. He was he was uh, he was low born in a certain <coughs> in a certain sense. He was uh, he had all these admirable American virtues. He was self-made. Douglas calls him a plebeian rather than the aristocratic James James Buchanan. He was like you, you know, broad majority of white working class Americans. He was like you in the way that he grew up. And look what he became, right? Look what he developed into. And I think Douglas exaggerates. He calls Lincoln racially prejudiced several times in his speech, and he doesn't take it back. Um, I don't think he believed that about Lincoln, to be to be honest with you. But he but he calls him that. Why does he do that? I think that is. I think at least my answer to that is that that's because he wants to establish this bond of sympathy. <coughs> Lincoln really was, in a certain sense, the white man's president. You know, he was devoted to the things you're devoted for. And you ought to see what grew out of that in his career. And by turns over time, that can, that can evolve to you, too. I think he's preserving a kind of sympathy between white America and, uh, and, and Lincoln in order to advance the interests generally of the whole country, but particularly of black America. I think there's a kind of complicated logic going on when he talks about the white man's president. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I think that, too, that he's showing two extreme sides of, of viewpoints, uh, two extreme viewpoints that were probably <coughs> expressed during that time period. Um, and, and in reality, um, kind of, he probably had more of an opinion more in the middle. Um, and, and but, but felt both sides and, and is really showing to each side, look, this is what he's done for you, look, this is what he's done for you. And and really, you know, people have both sides on them. Well, I, to that I would add that Douglas sees something potentially very advantageous in representing Lincoln to the country the way that he the way that he does. I think, uh, you know, not to say, now let's, uh, I, should, I should begin this by saying, that Douglas considered Lincoln a kind of friend. Um, Douglas was very, very touched by some of the gestures Lincoln made to him, personal, personal gestures. Lincoln, uh, after Lincoln's death, the Mary Todd Lincoln gave to Douglas Lincoln's favorite walking stick. And said to him, "I think that I think that uh, that my husband would have wanted you to have this, right? You know, he was very, very touched by that. And the accounts that he gives of his interviews with Lincoln in the in the White House, <laughs> the best one is when uh, um, Lincoln uh, has just given his his second inaugural address. War is winding down, right? Lincoln gives this wonderful, wonderful speech, second inaugural address. There's a reception in the White House afterwards. Douglas attended the speech." Douglas wanted to attend the reception. Tries to go in, gets <coughs> blocked at the door by, you know, by White House security, such as it was in, in those days, right? <laughs> Douglas gets blocked at the door, you know, and somebody who's Douglas's acquaintance passes. Douglas, uh, you know, uh, uh, motions to him, tell Mr. Lincoln that I'm being at detained at the at the door, and so. Word gets inside to Lincoln that Frederick Douglass is at the door. Lincoln orders that he be admitted immediately. Uh, and so Douglass walks into this big room at the center of which obviously is, is Lincoln. And Lincoln says apparently in his big loud voice, here comes my friend Douglass, right? 
and kind of ushers him to the front and asks him what his opinion was of the second inaugural and say, and Douglas kind of demurs <coughs> and is being, for Douglas, uncharacteristically modest and and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Lincoln persists and says, no, there's no one in the country whose opinion <coughs> I value more than yours about this, about this speech, right? So there's all these, these really warm personal gestures and I, I, I bring all that up just to say Douglas genuinely grieved when, uh, when Lincoln was assassinated. That said, Douglas sees a big opportunity when Lincoln is assassinated also, okay? This becomes, as you teachers say, as we teachers say too often, a teachable moment for the country, right? <laughs> you know? That, that, uh, that, uh, that look, you know, the Civil War itself is a big teachable moment, obviously, but ending in this way with the assassination of the great emancipator, this is going to magnify Lincoln, Douglas says. And so now it's going to be a very important thing and a large opportunity to affect the way, to try to shape the way people remember Lincoln. And so that's what's, that's what's going on in the speech. You know, Douglas wants the war to be remembered. He spends the rest of his career reminding people, look, you know, 600,000 people got killed in this war, and you need to understand why. You need to remember why the war was fought, you know, and what the life of Lincoln really meant. And so Lincoln needs to be the great emancipator on the one hand, but he needs to be, and this is the complicated thing about the appeal to black Americans. Lincoln needs to be the great emancipator for this historical memory that's going to issue in some further racial progress, you know, to take hold. But he needs not to be a savior, right? He needs not to be a figure upon which people become dependent. There's another way to put that. Um, you know, suppose that the whole purpose of the speech is to honor Lincoln. To honor Lincoln, not only as the savior of the Union, but as the great emancipator, the great liberator, right? Um, well, if you think that through a little bit, honoring Lincoln as the great emancipator <coughs> makes really good sense only depending upon the character of the people he emancipated, right? If the people he emancipated, I'm going to put this bluntly just to, just for purposes of clarity, if the people he emancipated turn out to be not capable of governing themselves in freedom, then there's no greatness in emancipating them, right? You know, so honoring Lincoln has to mean honoring the character and the virtue of the people he emancipated. And honoring the character and the virtue of the people he emancipated has to mean honoring their independence, their, their capacity for self-government, or the fact that they're not dependent on savior figures like Lincoln. Honoring Lincoln has to mean both praising him and in a way diminishing him, to leave room for the virtue of the people he emancipated. I think that's, that's really at the heart of the complication of the speech. I don't remember saying that last year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, he was uh, uh, the white man's president. I think it's, it's good to remind 
people that never arrived <coughs> people, not just abolitionists, not just with some people, radical abolitionists that were uh, pre-labor in the West, pre-soil. So some of those, um, you know, he didn't do it, he, in some ways, uh, they were responsible too, but I, I, I'm not sure that's not what Federal was saying, but in some ways it was good to remind them that, remind the country that Lincoln wasn't alone wanting to free uh, free labor and, and free in the West. Uh, there were a lot of other white people that wanted that too. Oh yeah. For different reasons. For mixed motives. Right, yeah. right, right. Well, there's. I didn't really dwell on this, but it is an important part of the speech. When uh, Douglas represents what he calls the genuine abolition ground, and that means that means the positions held by the abolitionists, the really radical abolitionists, who were much more radical than Lincoln about about slavery, who, who wanted, you know, instant emancipation so far as that's possible, um, who were a little put out with the certainly quite impatient with the free soil position. Well, you know, you can't do anything about slavery where it exists for right now, but you just don't let it expand, you just try to contain it, which was a, a way, at least, of describing Lincoln's position. Uh, and, uh, and the radical abolitionists think this is really sluggish, right? It's likely to lead the perpetuation of slavery for a long, long time, way too long, right, uh, to, be, to be in any way morally acceptable to them. And Douglas gives voice to that position in the speech, and he says, from this point of view, Lincoln looked like he was cold, tardy, indifferent to the, to the abolition of slavery. But then he changes perspectives, and he says, well, you know, from what I call the statesman's point of view, the point of view of somebody who's an elected politician, and who feels himself acting within constitutional limitations, Lincoln's a very good constitutional lawyer, you know, from that point of view, Lincoln appeared, says Douglas, zealous, you know, really energetically devoted to the abolition of, of slavery. And I think Douglas ultimately thinks, in, in a certain sense, against his, against his own sentiment, I guess, that the statesman's view is really the superior view. I mean, in, in a certain way, I think he's still always attracted to the, what he calls the genuine abolition ground. He, he thinks it's a kind of moral high ground. You just don't compromise with slavery at all, right? But there's a there, there's an indifferentness, indifference to consequences in that in that position that I think Douglas ultimately finds unacceptable. But anyway, the, the reason I bring them up is to say that it is it is I think a part of his intention in the speech too, to suggest that the genuine abolition ground has to be credited for, and then that was Lincoln's position. The, the genuine abolition ground, the Garrisonians and others, have to be credited for, for abolition. They played a big part in creating the set of circumstances that, that led to it. Seems that maybe he, Lincoln serves a purpose of, uh, even though he's been dead for 11 years, maybe Douglas sees him by humanizing him, by showing his faults, maybe Lincoln's still going to serve a purpose for the people. If he just eulogizes the great emancipator, people think mm -hmm. it's great, they go home, mm -hmm. and they don't think anything at all about it. Mm -hmm. that. But if they, if he can bring Lincoln's memory and make them rethink Lincoln, then Lincoln can serve a purpose for him. And by humanizing him, mm -hmm. he still serves that purpose. It can make people think that, you know, bring, you know, plant the seed in people's minds that 
to rethink Lincoln, how Lincoln could serve Douglas's purposes down the road. I think you're in distinguished company in saying that, actually. That, that position is the position taken by W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, who says something quite interesting, I think, about about Lincoln. It's a little bit, um, I was thinking of Du Bois when I said what I said uh, a, a few minutes ago on, on this subject, that th by, by humanizing Lincoln, as you say, you make Lincoln imitable, you know? If Lincoln is really kind of singular in virtue, then he can't be imitated by, by other people. He's, he's something far beyond ordinary mortal's capacities, right? If he's subject to the same human frailties and faults as the rest of us, he's a plebeian in Douglas's term, you know, not, uh, not an aristocrat in the pure sense, then he becomes imitable, accessible. Du Bois says that about Lincoln. I love Lincoln not because he was perfect, but because he was imperfect. You know, I love Lincoln, says Du Bois. In other words, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not quoting exactly. That you know, I, I I love Lincoln because Lincoln is somebody who was raised in a a slave state, at least for his early years, and then raised in parts of the Midwest that were not altogether unfriendly to slavery. Right. Um, Lincoln raised amid a climate of, of racial prejudice, and he overcame that. That doesn't necessarily mean he shed all of his own racial biases, from Du Bois' point of view anyway. I doubt it means that. You know, didn't get rid of them, but he overcame them. He did something that liberated African Americans, or at least a very large number of them, right? in a certain sense, despite himself, you know? So in that way, he's an, an object of imitation. You could do this too, says Du Bois. See this man, he was like you. Um, you could be like him, right, in, in overcoming your own racial biases. To that, I guess, the only thing I would add that I think is a shortcoming of that view is that Du Bois acts like there's nothing in Lincoln's kind of background and upbringing <coughs> that would support abolition. So it's almost entirely an act of self-overcoming that, uh, that leads Lincoln to be the emancipator. I think what Douglas says in the 1876 speech is not quite that. That, yeah, Lincoln, Douglas calls Lincoln an American of the Americans, representative <coughs> American in good ways as well as bad. Right? In the bad ways, he grew up with racial prejudice like almost all the rest of white America. Right. Um, in the good ways, you know, self-made, rose by his own labor and efforts and energy and, and, and so forth, um, there are good things about the climate in which Lincoln grew up that also support his development. And it's an important thing in Douglass's mind, I think, to call attention to those because it speaks to the potential for the, of the country to, to reform itself. That's, that's all I got. Anyway, I'm told uh, that has to be the last one. So thank, thank you, you for that.